The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, the Euro final. England 2, Germany 1. Chloe Kelly thrilling millions around the telly as the Lionesses show us all how it's done. We salute England's misses, decisive in a Euro final for the second year running, then from the Queens to the King Power for the Community Shield. Man City, Liverpool. Topically, two candidates for leadership in another televised battle as a new set of strikers readies for action. Our thoughts on that and much, much more in this Totally Football Show. We are absolutely delighted to be formally welcoming Serena on board. She is clearly one of the best coaches in the world. I think uh, we have a very talented squad. There are many talented players in England. I'm very excited, um, ready to go. We developed really well and we're in a very good place at the moment. England 7, Norway nil. England 8, Norway nil. It looks like it's easy, but never take it for granted. It's not easy. Space opening up for Georgia Stanway. Goes for goal! Oh my word! We want to inspire the nation. I think that's what we're doing. Well, when you reach the final, then you're one of the best teams in the tournament. I think we have a very good team too, and we don't fear anyone. Hello, listener. The fans were tense, but the manager was Serena. As England claimed the 2022 European title on a warm and wondrous night in Wembley, 87,000 fans on the edge of their seats, the Duke of Cambridge in particular, one imagines. And Daniel Storey and Nick Miller and Raphael Honigstein are with us today. And Charlotte Harper's on the line as well. And good morning to you all. It is Monday the 1st of August, the first day, well, of something, Charlotte. It really feels like that. It feels like we've crossed a line and women's football will not be the same again. Wow. Okay. Daniel, you were there. Nick Miller, as I say, is with us, but not quite with us at the moment. Danny, I imagine you're kind of struggling to process so much of your identity as an England supporter is bound up with dismay and disappointment. How do you process? Well, I think you, you treat it absolutely on its merit. I think the, the 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 both the great and the sad thing about yesterday is that um, if the men had won the, the the European Championships last summer, they would have been treated purely on their own merits. They would have been the champions. Whereas even even Captain Leah Williamson, the first thing she has to say in her post match interview is, "This is a mark for the future. You know, come to WSL games, show that we have made a difference. This is bigger than us," which is a tremendous thing because the, these players seemingly embrace that. But also, I found quite sad in that. Um, they clearly enjoyed the moment and they'll enjoy last night and they'll, they'll enjoy the next few days, weeks and months. But each of them knows that this is, they are the start of something, which is a, a um, yeah, it's a huge honour for them. And it's something that thankfully they, they seem to be able to embrace wholeheartedly. Serena Wiegmann after the game was talking about, you know, a sea change uh, and these players stepping up now as role models because like it or not, that's what they are. Um mm. 
it, it, I mean, it was a, it was a joyful day. It was a, a horribly tense day. It was a bitty game. I think England were probably lucky on the balance of of play to win it. But as you say, so much of English football identity is lies in us losing on those occasions that it, it's glorious for for us to be on the other side for once. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the game, how it all happened uh, for the benefit of Rafa, who's on a plane for most of it, uh, very very shortly. But uh, the point you make about the significance going beyond the game. For the players, Charlotte, I'm guessing that, I mean, it was a distraction maybe from what they were doing, but also just what a feeling of pride for them, given the extraordinary passage, the extraordinary growth of the women's game in this country. As has been pointed out, 101 years since the uh, the sport for women was banned for 50 years. These players have grafted, but they do it when no one's watching and they will continue to do it when you know, behind the scenes and the everyday work that they put in, that's professional athletes. Of of course, they feel enormous pride in terms of the family and friends that have shown that support from when they were young girls and, and didn't have professional environments. We're talking about taking young girls to training or Lucy Bronze's parents and or her mum would take Demi Stokes and, and that sacrifice that they've made. Um, but... Of course, these players will become even more of a role model, but they have been for the last 15 years of their professional careers. And Leah Williamson was saying how, as captain, she hasn't changed who she is. She's still Leah Williamson, still doing the basics. And although they are role models, they're not going to change drastically who they are or what they have been doing day in, day out. Don't be fooled by the European titles that I got. Still, Leah Willis from, from the block. Rafa, what's the reaction been like in, in, in Germany? Losing a, a Euro final for the first time in nine such matches. Yeah, big disappointment, of course. Um, Germany surprised themselves to an extent by making it this far. They were not quite sure about their own strength and maybe over-exaggerated the weaknesses that they had at the back. But there was a real wave of euphoria. 18 million people watched the final last night, which, uh, of course, is a, is a new record and would have been a very good turnout for a men's game. But also a sense of um, disappointment with the refereeing uh, decision that went England's way with Leah Williamson handling the ball on the line from uh, Marina Hegering. You know, that uh, very difficult scene, perhaps, to see during the match when... After the corner, the ball was sort of flip-flopping and ping-ponging around. And and a bit of a mystery uh, as far as VR's decision not to give it to the referee. And of course, they looked at it, but immediately decided that it's not, it's not, a, it's not a penalty. And Martina Voss-Tecklenburg, the Germany coach, saying she would have liked to understand why that was. That there was no communication. Bild actually asked one of the two VR referees, who's an Italian guy, called uh, Paolo Valeri, I think. Not from Azerbaijan this time, Rafa. Uh, not from Azerbaijan <laughs> this time. And he answered, uh, Non posso dire niente, mi dispiace. I can't say anything. I'm sorry. Yeah, which didn't Crying really help away. much. No. Okay. Thanks for bringing us that quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall I, how, I'm not sure how much voice we've got, we've got left from you because it sounds like you rendered the occasion the celebration it deserved, possibly in the 13 or so hours since the final whistle blew at Wembley. But but talk us through the game. First of all, I'm going to say a bit of a slow burner of a first half. 
But then what a goal to open the scoring. What a pass to set up the goal, but what a goal to open the scoring from Ella Toon. Yeah, first half, I think England started okay, um, better than they had done in, in previous matches. But if you look at Germany's expected goals, then uh, that was way above England. England had chances, especially that cutback from, from Beth Mead, but I think we felt pretty comfortable going in nil-nil at half-time that that's, you know, we didn't want to concede early on and we, we know we'd had sticky starts from England's perspective. But what a goal, what a pass from Kira Walsh, my word, threading the ball through the eye of a needle. And Toon, she had pressure from Germany, but she also had time. It was quite a long distance for her. And I thought she'd overhit it, but beautiful chip and absolutely splendid goal from Ella Toon uh, to come into her first major tournament and make such a clinical finish, having only just come on as a substitute. All credit to her. Indeed. Rafa, pretty special equaliser, though, with, what, 11 minutes to go in the 90? Really nice combination uh, down the right. Uh, Sidney Lohmann, uh, one of the subs, and Tabea Wasmut, the other sub, uh, combining really well there. And it was nice uh, to see Germany actually for once uh, playing a bit of football. I think everything felt a little bit rushed uh, in this game. That was mostly due to England's pressing, but also Germany were a little bit sloppy in midfield. They didn't really get into situations where they had a bit of time to construct a move. This was the one or two moments when it really came off and it felt as if things might shift at that moment. Now, I must say that this is the very last thing I saw. Um, I saw the first 80 minutes and I saw the goal go in and I was worried that it might have been offside, but it wasn't in the build-up. And then I didn't, didn't see much afterwards apart from the the highlights. But I think Germany feel that with Alexandra Pop pulling out in the warm-up and the handball going um, not their way and perhaps the occasion getting to them a little bit or, or maybe the combination of England's very aggressive play and, and, and Germany's lack of focus on the ball combined to maybe didn't quite bring the best out of them or we didn't quite see the best of this team in this tour, in this in this final. Perhaps that, that's what happens often in finals. You can't mm. quite play at your best and you have to sort of find a way. And they didn't. And uh, they're hugely disappointed as a result, which you can understand. I think a lot of England supporters thought Germany were quite physical. Uh, although I think a lot of people recognise that Germany were for quite a part of the game, maybe the superior side. I'm not sure if there's quite as much uh, concern over the, the handball incident. Uh, Chloe Kelly, though, and the, the, the winning goal, Charlotte. What about that? It was a bit of a kind of goal scramble. She swiped mm. at it first time and missed and then outstretched her right leg and just a toe poke in wheeled away and it was about to pull off her shirt and stopped to check that the goal had actually been given and it was just euphoria from that it was one of those blurred moments and you just saw her shirt swinging and sprinting towards the bench and it was then the, the mastery of uh, time-wasting, really. I don't know if you've seen the clip, but it is brilliant where Germany pass on a note. I'm not exactly sure what are the timings. 
and Toon tries to get hold of it. And then Alessia Russo is just peering over the shoulder as if she speaks or understands or reads German. And it was just brilliant. Um, that did make me chuckle. But uh, yeah, England held on for a long nine minutes and directed straight towards the corner flags. Yeah, an extra time, Daniel, which had, had started with England looking the more kind of pooped of the, of the pair of teams. Oh, totally. But- uh, I mean, I, I think for for all but the 10 seconds when they scored the goal, um, I, I think pretty much every English supporter in the stadium would have been happy with a, a penalty shootout, even though that contains its own, you know, sporting demons for us. I, I mean, that celebration was uh, absolutely magical, not just because she, <laughs> Chloe Kelly realize, starts to take off her shirt and realises inevitably that this is going to be an iconic moment if it goes well but also realizes that it's going to be a real nightmare if she does the big celebration and it is disallowed so fair play to her she waits but even then in the penalty area kelly is followed by about three england players and and all the substitutes are going mad and the coaches are going mad of course but in the penalty area there's three or four england players who barely move i think just because they're knackered and because they can't quite comprehend what's happened because they were goosed at that point. They were totally knackered. They were, they were basically having to deal with long balls down the channels. And, and for all Russo's strength, she, she hasn't got the pace to get beyond Germany. And they were just mopping it up. And it was kind of one-way traffic at that point. Um, obviously, winning the corner and it coming from the set piece, was it felt the only way England were going to score. But I think it was Lucy Bronze in the box who was just kind of stood looking at the sky as if she couldn't quite believe what had happened. And then you've got Leah Williamson and Millie Bright surging around players just sort of pointing at their heads and saying think on think on we haven't won this yet we've got to win it now and as Charlotte said that last seven minutes England got a corner with about five minutes of normal time to go and they just kept the ball in the corner and I was screaming and I know Nick said before the show to to me as well I was screaming like this is too early You, you can't do this with five minutes to go and yet that's exactly what they did they they just kept the ball down there they kept winning throw-ins, they kept winning free kicks, they kept frustrating Germany. It was a, for a team that's never won a major tournament for, it was an incredibly well pre-planned and executed tactic of shutting down the game. And it was time-wasting, but they are all parts of, of major tournament winning teams and England did it brilliantly. Mm. Charlotte, what were you feeling after Chloe's goal? Euphoria, definite relief, but also I've got to get my piece sorted within <laughs> five minutes. And my editor was like, this piece needs to go. So I actually didn't see the last five minutes. And I was looking up, but that I had to write. That was all that I was focusing off as soon as we knew that England had a good chance. Just coming back to the celebration, there's somebody from Twitter called Lucy Ward, who's I believe is an author. And she said, this image of a woman shirtless in a sports bra is hugely significant. This is a woman's body, not for sex or show, just for the sheer joy of what she can do and the power and skill she has. Wonderful. And I was trying to find a way to express the feeling that I found that Chloe Kelly ripped off her shirt unashamedly. Women have been definitely restricted in how they can express themselves uh, in their clothing or in society and other countries, those restrictions are still in place, of course, uh, corresponding to cultural norms as well. But it was that, you know, just admire her for her athleticism and the body that has produced this amazing talent rather than 
in any kind of attractive or sexualized way. And that was um, amazing to see that she, when I asked about it in the mix zone, she said she didn't even think about it. It wasn't planned. She just did it. So, yeah, wanted to bring that up. Yeah, the, uh, and I mean, the, it was interesting to see last night on Twitter, Brandy Chastain congratulating Chloe Kelly, this kind of full circle almost in in the way that Chastain celebrated very similarly after her winning penalty in the 99 Women's World Cup and and kind of all that meant for for US sport after after title 9 and the the equal funding for for women and men's college sport and how that was that investment was you know seen such a direct path between the investment and the success and the cultural relevance therefore of of women's football and it's impossible not to make the same comparison with England because this is a significant moment for 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 women's sport i said at the start it, it made me slightly uneasy that they felt they had to embrace this as a as a as a rise of football outside of the the kind of confines of their team but it's also an absolutely brilliant thing and and moments mm. like that and images like that will they stay permanent they they stay relevant that that will still be there in the national football museum in 20 years as a kind of mark a line in the sand of of exactly what charlotte's talking about right a point on a journey and who knows where that journey could take us all Crikey, of course, we've got the World Cup coming up next year down under, and that's just going to be off the... I mean, the interest in that now, Charlotte, is going to be just off off the scale. That's what we've got to keep pushing, that this isn't just a one-week wonder or one-month wonder. And even uh, in the German league, and I'll bring Rafa in on this, we've been building the momentum and, and the noise around getting bigger crowds at the WSL and making sure that this is a transitionary phase from international stage to domestic stage. And of course, that's leading into the World Cup. But I'm unsure how this will affect the German league as well, Rafa. Well, this is the big question. Um, You know, Germany have won so many major titles before, yet the effect on the grassroots um, game and even on the professional club game has been has been negligible. Um, women's football has halved over the last few years in terms of the teams actually taking part. Some league games get crowds of less than a thousand people watching. The kickoff times are really bad. They sometimes clash uh, with men's games. There's sometimes in the afternoon where no one, no one really has time to watch. So a big part of the coverage now in Germany at the moment is how can we translate this, this euphoria, even though they didn't win, and this interest that, that this competition generated into a more sustainable uh, success and, and commercialization of the game, which is necessary. And one of the things that is being talked about is the league perhaps setting up its own its own body, because right now it's still run by the German FA. Um, so you have an interesting debate now where a lot of the things that are seen as a little bit problematic in the men's game a real emphasis on commercialization, on marketing, on on building the product is actually necessary for the women's game, for this to be uh, not just a bit of a flash in a pan as far as the, the audience is concerned. Um, on the sporting side, there is no doubt that this Germany team will be hugely competitive uh, in the World Cup because they have so many players who are still at the, 
uh, right age or even beginning to approach their, their best year. So that, that's not going to be a problem. But the big question will be, does that translate into more eyeballs, into more, more attention for, um, for club football as well? Well, 18 million, well, that's what, 36 million eyeballs on the final. That's an extraordinary number. How many, how many were there in, in the UK? 23.4 million, including streams, watched it on the BBC yesterday. Wow. So that's, that's almost exactly double the record, which was set in 2019. So in the space of three years, they've almost doubled the record. Amazing. That's good. I think it's important to say as well that there's almost two legacies out of this tournament, which is both the major nations of which England are, are clearly the, the prime example because they won the tournament, but also the, the slightly more perceived as fringe nations in terms of women's football, which is, you know, the rise of, of countries like Finland and Northern Ireland. And it's how much the improvement in those countries can persuade other national FAs to, to invest in women's football and create a pathway not necessarily to winning major tournaments because you know there are there are probably 180 countries in in the world who are never likely to win a major tournament but that's not the point about sport the point about sport is about kind of national pride and interest and participation and it goes beyond those major nations to to others and and that's where the world cup comes in and the expansion of the world cup and the the i think four new countries have already qualified for that that's the other legacy out of this tournament that if you get eyeballs on a tournament it isn't just for the major nations it's for everyone there's going to be a huge demand for teams to be set up girls are going to want to play football and get involved in football and we've already heard requests of six, seven teams to be set up in a in a town. Now, A, do we have the facilities to support that, pitches available? And B, you know, the human resources to run that as well. And this ties in with the FA's Discover My Talent programme where previously you had to be part of a regional talent centre to play for England. But they're wanting to go into cages or parks or estates and scout the best talent. And if there's going to be a huge explosion of girls wanting to play football, but then they meet barriers, access to pitches, uh, access to coaching, um, transport to get to those pitches, then we're just going to be back to square one. So that's really important that we actually are able to meet the demand because I fear that at the moment the demand is going to outweigh the supply. Mm. Well. In some ways, it's a, a nice problem to have, but congratulations to England on and off the field. An incredible success story uh, this Euros. Uh, very good. I think Nick Miller joins us now. Nick. Hello. After Hello. Some technological disasters, which is going to end in me uh, taking my laptop out into the street and burning it in uh, a small ceremony. But I'm Crikey. here now. But, but, but not before you've spoken to us very, very shortly about the other big uh, football match possibly not quite the same scale, uh, that took place this weekend, and I'm referring, yes, to the Community Shield. We'll be talking that next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, I'm James Richardson with a quick word on the audio treats The Athletic have in store this season. Three times a week, you get the award-winning Totally Football Show with the likes of James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Carl Anker and Rory Smith and me. Uh, Mark Chapman hosts The Athletic Football Podcast a flashy four times a week with David Ornstein, Adam Crafton and many others. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast will have all the women's Super League coverage off the back of their brilliant Euros. And the offside rule is back too with weekly episodes. That's not all. There are eight dedicated club shows. There's Adam Hurry's joyous football cliché show, Michael Cox's insightful athletic football tactics podcast, the offbeat TIFO football podcast, and a revamped football manager show too. You can get all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. By the way, if you're after a bit more reaction to Sunday's triumph for England at Wembley, the Athletic Women's Football Podcast recorded on site at the National Stadium, if that's what they call it, Wembley Stadium anyway, yes, on Sunday is out now. Well, our next for us to the Community Shield, overshadowed a little by events at Wembley the following day. But this was a rip-roaring season curtain raiser, was it not? Liverpool 3, Man City 1. Yeah, I mean, a, a charity sh- a community shield, sorry, with goals, which is kind of slightly unusual. You, do, you don't usually, everything is usually very sort of cagey and everyone's half fit and no one really cares. But um, this was actually... Uh, you know, a pretty decent game. I mean, it's kind of obviously continuation of what uh, of the the rivalry that has sort of dominated English football for the last three or four years. Um, I suppose the the main thing that a lot of people are concentrating on is Erling Haaland and Darwin Nunes. Um, Hadn't occurred to me. Uh, we'll, we'll ask um, that question. I, I'm here to uh, to kind of bring in the things that no one else has thought about. That's why you've been waiting for me for all this time. Perfect. Well, Daniel, you went along. You were there at the King Power. So what what did you think or what, what did you know on your way out of the game that you didn't know going in? The lack of service to, to Holland surprised me slightly. Um, before the game, my big worry or my, probably my only worry about Manchester City this season is that, to my mind, I think they, they sold their most uh, effective uh, attacking link player Kevin De Bruyne is clearly the the creative force but what Raheem Sterling does and and doesn't always do it efficiently because of the chance conversion but what he does I think is is to play in a way that Pep Guardiola feels like he has complete control over that attack and in Jack Jack Grealish I still don't think he has that control Uh, I think there's a sense with Manchester City when Grealish gets the ball no one around him for better sometimes and also for worse really knows what he's going to do next whereas with Sterling there was a set pattern and they're going to have to learn to do that pretty quickly it won't matter against half the teams in the Premier League because they will score enough goals and and Haaland will score enough goals but I think in the big games and we're probably particularly talking Champions League here um, I think that will matter and they have to work out a way of that improving pretty quickly Liverpool were were 
fantastic. Uh, they also picked a, a team that was already there last season. I think that showed in the first half. They looked a lot more um, kind of coherent with the ball. And and in Darwin Nunes, they have a player who, I don't know how many goals he's going to score, but you better believe that he gets what he needs to do to make himself popular with Liverpool fans. Put it that way. He, you know, when he's when he's warming up, he's kind of, dem, you know, really demonstrably, so almost like bowing to the crowd at the end of the King Power. When he comes on, he's chasing everything down. He's doing flicks. When he scores the shirts off in what is a friendly, uh, and yeah, he gets it, and they get him, and that that has always been powerful at Liverpool. So, before you ask me what I learnt that's new and, and the answer in always in the community shield is very little but what I certainly have doubled down on is for all the improvement in Arsenal for all the improvement in Tottenham for all Chelsea have bought Sterling and Kaladu Koulibaly these two are definitely still the best two teams in the Premier League mm. although as it stands Man City perhaps weaker or less effective than they were last season Picking up on something Daniel said a few times, um, Holland were making these runs kind of behind the defence, and then either the pass from uh, De Bruyne, I think it was De Bruyne a couple of times came slightly too late or not at all, and was was was, was blocked. And I, I just wondered whether it will because as as Daniel mentioned, Liverpool can kind of carry on playing as they were, and they can integrate Nunes a little bit more gradually if they need to. This uh, signing Holland, he will score a lot of goals uh, at some various points in the season, but it will take them much longer to change the way that their attack uh, works than Liverpool will. So whether that will actually translate into them being a weaker side throughout the season, I'm not sure, but um, we'll just take them a little bit longer. Here comes Rafa. Yeah, well, I think the the big question that uh, people in Germany had about this transfer is whether Haaland can play enough football for this for the City team because he, he doesn't touch the ball a lot even when he does get better service. He likes to be the guy on the final pass on the shoulder defender or the guy tapping it in. And I think City, in order to have a player like that that doesn't sort of contribute much for the midfield and Guardiola, as we know, loves to loves all of football to be one giant midfield, everyone to be a midfielder, is going to be fascinating to see. And I think it will take some time. The other thing... I think we shouldn't overlook is that City have a bit of a habit of starting quite slowly under under Guardiola. And that's been a bit of a pattern. And they finish really super strongly and then tend to not drop any points in the second half of the season or towards the second half of the season. So let's treat their problems with, you know, with, with, with some caution at the moment. I think they'll, they'll get a lot better still. Okay. Man City's problems treated with caution and Liverpool's success is equally... The imposter, all that. Yeah. Let's see. Great goal from uh, Trent to open up the scoring. Enjoy that? Yeah, it was. It was slightly diminished by the fact that Nathan Ake f- flicked it on with his head. He, it, One of those where the defender feels he has to go for it. But if he leaves it, then I think Edison saves it. And if he gets more of a touch, he blocks it. But he kind of did exactly the wrong thing. Um, and yeah, I think they will probably want John Stones to play with Ruben Diaz in, in that role. Um, I don't think Aki will play that much this season. And it doesn't look like they're getting Mark Cucurella. Allowed. No, mm. no, it doesn't. It, it looks as if Brighton have stuck to their guns on that and said, they, they had always said, we want 50 million and, and how these things normally work is that the club leaks, they want 50 million and the bid comes in at 30 to 35 million and they try and find a point in the middle. It sounds like Brighton are saying it's 50 million or nothing. The, the slight complicating factor is that we're told that Cucurella has made it 
pretty clear to Brighton that he'd like to move, even to the extent of handing in a transfer request. But it doesn't sound like that's going to change Brighton's mind. They they want the fifty million. Their their business model, their recruitment model, works on selling one star asset every summer. So it was Ben White last summer. They have already sold Eve Basuma this summer. So they think it's going to take a an outrageous offer for them to consider selling another player. And good on them for that. Mm. All right, Man City equalising though. With 20 minutes to go through, Julian Alvarez, who'd come off the bench, who they'd bought last January. And, of course, we've been keeping a big eye on and in no way had forgotten about. They loaned him back to River Plate from whence he had come, but now he's here and looking effective. What did you make of uh, Julian Alvarez? Yeah, I mean, the one thing about um, selling Sterling and Gabriel Jesus is that the, they may not have been kind of automatic starters last season, but they've lost quite a bit of flexibility in attack, both of those players can obviously play through the middle or out wide. I suppose that the emphasis is now on Julian Alvarez to, to do that. He can play in those positions as well, whereas Erling Haaland is you know, very much a, a centre-forward. So um, Alvarez was, was pretty good. He, he sort of, you know, a bit of a poacher's goal. But I think there will be, quite, as I said, quite a lot of pressure on him to, um, to fulfil the roles that Sterling and Jesus did last season. I think I think the the difference maybe with him to Gabriel Jesus is with Jesus it tended to be that he he came in to start games reasonably infrequently when when they rotated. With Al, Alvarez looks made up to be the sort of player that they bring on after 65 70 minutes of most games and looks like he could probably score 15 Premier League goals this season in those little 20 minute bursts alone because uh, against tired legs he looks exactly what City need. Mhm. So he'd made it 1-1, then Darwin Nunes. Oh, Rafi, you'll have enjoyed this. A handball decision in the box that was given. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. You didn't? No, I'm strictly neutral. Oh, OK. Well, the referee gave the penalty. Mo Salah converted, dispatched it, and then Nunes made it an emphatic 3-1 scoreline with that header. And, uh, what, let's see, he scored a goal every 76 minutes in Portugal. Took 35 minutes to score in this game. Had more shots than completed passes. But if you were one of the two managers, which of the two managers do you think would be happier with their, with their signing? Where, there are two schools of thought, for example, on Haaland, if we're going to make Nick's comparison. One is to say that he had the fewest touches of the ball in the first half. Mr. Sidder at the end didn't look in sync with his new teammates. Can he fit? question that's been asked a little bit in, in Germany as you were saying Rafa. The other one though is if that's him playing for a new club with teammates that he barely knows and he, he still has three big chances then what's going to happen a game or two into the season? Yeah that's that's fair. Um, I, I think I think Manchester City could have won the league this season if they'd have stuck with what they had. I think the difference with Liverpool is I think Darwin Nunes is potentially the game changer. If he if he performs as as they hope he will in his debut season, then I don't think Liverpool would have won the league this season if they'd have just kept the same team, if they'd have kept Sadio Mane and Salah. I think they needed a fresh another freshen up. I think Nunes potentially is the game changer. But the, the question always for Liverpool is how many points do we need? Because if we need 93 points or 94 points to win the league again, then it's an incredibly difficult thing to do while juggling Champions League football as well. Well, we, we talked about how much Man City might miss Raheem Sterling. What, what about Liverpool with Sadio Mane, Rafa, who's gone off to join Bayern Munich? And, oh my word, he's already 
uh, on the score sheet on his on his Bayern debut. Yeah, Sadio Mane looked good. Bayern looked good for a stop. They beat Leipzig in the uh, German version of the Community Shield as the Super Cup. 5-3, very exciting game, certainly in the second half. Uh, but Bayern had really done the job by then. They destroyed Leipzig in the first half. Their movement was incredible. Julian Nagelsmann playing a very fashionable 4-2-2-2 with Sadio Mane and Serge Gnabry up front and then Müller and Musiala behind. And there was so much movement and so much fluidity that uh, Leipzig just couldn't cope uh, with this Bayern team. And they looked very, very fresh and yeah, pretty exciting going forward. Um, but Jamal Muziala actually stole the headlines a little bit because his performance was just absolutely sensational. Um, he was the player that made everything happen for him. Uh, Mane scored a goal, Gnabry scored a goal, Leroy Sané scored a goal when he came on, but it was Muziala who made this Bayern team uh, this good and he was, uh, he was out of this world. Uh, in this game and for somebody who's still so young I think he probably doesn't get quite enough plaudits relative to his performances. Rafa is the I mean is the sense that Bayern aren't going to directly replace Lewandowski they've, they've already sort of replaced him with Mane and they're just going to change the way they play slightly? Yeah that's Julian Nagelsmann's intention he's been quite open about the fact that he likes more fluidity he felt uh, last year's setup was a little bit stale with uh, Lewandowski being an out-and-out number nine. And uh, there was a bit of a clash between them when it came to Nagelsmann saying, I want you to do certain things, you know, be in slightly different positions. And Lewandowski's, no, I'm about scoring goals. I want to be in the centre, which, of course, you, you'd expect him to to say and, and, and think. And Bayern have decided that uh, that's it. They signed a, a young French player, Matisse Tell, from Rennes, who they think will one day be a superb striker, but he's only 17. And I don't think he's necessarily a real number nine either. Um, so uh, that's it. And that's uh, one of the reasons also why the Ronaldo story was never really a real distinct possibility because Julian Nagelsmann, I think, would have never acquiesced to um, going from one slightly static player to one slightly more static player. <laughs> Um, that that was not innocent in his mind. Mm. Can we have a word for Danny Olmo with his superb bit of of tactics when he left what looked like a throw in on the line? A tricking. Who was the Bayern defender who he fooled? Yeah, it was kind of it was a kind of progression from that. A few years ago, we got that trick where teams would sort of touch the ball for a corner and then run away as if they hadn't taken it, and someone would come and pick the ball up. This was a kind of uh, I don't know, it was a kind of sting version of that in that, yeah, he, he he left the ball on the pitch. He hadn't kicked it out for an injury. He left it on the pitch. So when the Bayern player then came and picked up the ball to restart the game, Danny Olmo immediately appeals and said, it's handball, the ball never went out of play. And he's right. And therefore they get this attacking free kick, which is, it's the sort of thing I hope you only get away with once. It's uh, Lucas Hernandez. Lucas Hernandez. Mm. Yeah. I mean, on the pitch to look good, off the pitch is quite interesting because Lewandowski has been very outspoken. Uh, saying that uh, parts of the Bayern hierarchy have lied about what really happened. And Hassan Salihamidzic, who's very much the uh, man of the moment in Munich because of his uh, transfer dealings having gone quite well so far, said that he was always taught as a youngster not to close the door with his backside. But that's exactly what Lewandowski seems to be doing at the moment. What a nice expression. Is that a, nice... exp- is that a German expression? Closing, you know, leaving on bad terms, 
closing the door with I, the backside. I've never heard it as a metaphor before, but I can, mm. you know, I can understand what he means in sort of more ballistic terms. Um, it's an interesting, interesting line. It certainly is. Heading for an interesting season in the Bundesliga. Rafa, if Bayern aren't replacing uh, Lewandowski, what's the situation at Dortmund now after the bad news about Sebastian Aller, who's, who's had um, further complications apparently in the last few days? Well, the uh, diagnosis came in and it is a malignant tumour, so that means he's going to be out for, for longer now. Um, and that's really bad news, first of all, for him, but also, of course, for, for Dortmund, who wanted to make him the pivotal player in their new um, attacking setup. I think they will get somebody in. I don't think there's necessarily the money to get somebody in of his calibre, of his quality. It might be more of an opportunistic loan deal for a slightly more experienced player. Uh, the names of uh, Edison Cavani, for example, are being banded around in Dortmund. I don't think that's going to happen for a number of reasons. But uh, somebody perhaps who wants to use this opportunity to play now for the next few months with the view of getting himself into the uh, World Cup uh, team. Uh, but I think it'll be more short term uh, because, of course, the assumption and the hope is that uh, Sebastian Haller will return um, fully fit and capable in due course. OK. What about that more slightly more static striker at Manchester United? Is that a, <laughs> is that too fitting to be true? Cristiano going to Dortmund. Yeah. Champ- he wants Champions League. They need a short-term striker on a one-year deal. No, it's not going to happen. It'd be a great story. And it'd be, I think it'd be amazing to see him play for the yellow wall in, in the yellow and black. But I think it's beyond Dortmund's financial possibility. And I don't think also they want that type of player. He'll be much bigger than the team, essentially, and I think they they have very different ideas. And Edin Terzic, they want the team to be the star. They want to be like a little bit, do what Klopp has done, and what Terzic himself did when they won the the DFB Pokal not long ago, which is to have a much more collective approach. Okay, we'll talk more about Big Chris in a second or two, perhaps, because I'm keen to get your thoughts. But here's a question from John Chadwick who says, what can we expect from my boys at Gladback this season, Rafa? Uh, Farkall, I think you can expect uh, from them. <laughs> uh, Fark has come in and he's won his first game, um, albeit against the lower division SV Oberachern in the German Cup 9-1 uh, at the weekend. Uh, Markus Turan looked good. He sort of was a forgotten player almost last season, playing quite badly along with the rest of the team and having one or two injury problems. And I think we'll, we can expect a big season from them. And and Farke is the type of coach, of course, whose game, which is very possession-based and very uh, different to, to how most of the Bundesliga teams play, could be the right fit because uh, they were at their best under Lucien Favre playing exactly that game. And when Marco Rosa came in and tried to change everything, it never really worked uh, apart from half a decent season. So I think this could be could be really interesting. They still have a good team, but they don't have a lot of money, so they haven't been able to strengthen to strengthen relative, I think, to the teams around them. Certainly, the teams above them look still a lot stronger. Okay, very good. We'll have much more on the Bundesliga when the European edition of the Totally Football Show returns a week tomorrow. Tomorrow being Tuesday, the second of August. We've also got a special. Premier League preview podcast 
coming out, so look out for that. Still to come today, we'll touch on some of the other Super Cups that took place around Europe, hear about Cristiano Ronaldo, and also get a few headlines from the Football League. This season, following your team on The Athletic is better than ever. Our brand new match blogs give you real-time updates so you'll get all the stats you need to know as they happen, from XG to XA, from progressive carries to PPDA, and so much more. You'll now get the same level of unrivaled insight from The Athletic during the 90 minutes as before and after kickoff. The Athletic's match blogs are the essential companion for everything you need to follow the game. See for yourself on The Athletic app and at theathletic.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Tuesday week, August the 9th. Experience Michael Cox, Duncan Alexander, Julian Laurence, and me live, raw, at the Lowry in Manchester. It's a special season preview thing. You can get tickets at Join us. Mm-hmm. By then, of course, we might know what's going to happen with the king. You know who I mean. <laughs> Pele. Oh. <laughs> Ahead of Man United's friendly with Rayo Vallecano this weekend, Ronaldo tweeting, the king will play. He only made 45 minutes of action before he got hooked by his new manager, Ten Hag, with whom he enjoyed... A fairly disinterested sideline conversation, tactical kind of breakdown. Would, would you say? Did you catch that? Yeah, it was, an, it was an unfortunate still in which Ronaldo, I think he's just... Well, if you watch the video as well, it, it doesn't get any better. Fine. Uh, I mean, the headline news is that Ronaldo, with or without permission, we are unsure yet, left the stadium after being substituted or before the end of the game, which, not that he cares, but w- would probably not send the right message about team harmony and integration uh, I mean it, it, it ostensibly looks like he, he's played Manchester United and that he said I am playing and he knows that if he then doesn't play that it becomes a bigger story than if he does and then by leaving he, he'd already told them reiterated to them in, an, in a meeting last week that he does want to leave that this idea of him saying I'm staying all along it was all noise that Manchester United would have liked to happen clearly isn't going to happen um, but there are not many obvious places for him to land it, it it kind of feels now like Napoli is the only one on the basis no. that they're the only one that haven't been ruled out yet was what about Sporting Club de Portugal in Lisbon well, that would that would be an interesting move but I know he wants to play Champions League but 
that would be such a message that what he wants to do is get three goals further ahead of, or a few goals further ahead of Lionel Messi in that kind mm. of Champions League record goal scorer race. Mm. It would be so obvious. And and if, if and I assume Rafa is completely right about the Dortmund wage thing. He he's going to have to take an even bigger cut to go to Sporting. And I am aware that there is a you know a kind of romance and nostalgia thing, but I don't know quite what it is about Cristiano Ronaldo that suggests that romance and nostalgia are not high upon his list. That. I don't know. I just I can't see mm. that one working either. I'm, I must admit, Rafa, are you hearing anything? I'm not hearing any things about Napoli being a concrete poss- possibility. I'm still keeping a candle burning in the window for the lone move to join Jose in, in Rome. But what are you hearing, <laughs> Raf? I haven't heard about uh, Napoli either. I think a lot of clubs and a lot of chairmen are hugely attracted to the <laughs> idea of getting Ronaldo in, especially if he's so desperate that he will accept the pay cut and maybe find a way of getting out of United without United asking for a transfer fee. I think that's the other issue. The combination of a transfer fee and Ronaldo's wages for, you know, is going to be a short-term thing because you're not going to give Ronaldo now a long-term contract wherever he goes. It makes it so difficult. But it comes with so much attention. There's so much marketing potential. There's so much you gain from, from having there, him there. I think the problem is that a lot of the managers see it very differently. I think Ruben Amorim, you know, to talk about sporting, is not necessarily thinking what I really need is Cristiano Ronaldo next season. Uh, you know that uh, Nagelsmann didn't think that. You know that I think Simeone, maybe he's open to the suggestion, but I mean, can you really see Cristiano Ronaldo playing in a Diego Simeone team? I mean, it, it's it's hard for me to envisage somehow. Maybe I'm lacking a bit of imagination. So it makes it very difficult. And the interesting thing here is, once a player makes a decision he leaves, usually that is connected to a very strong offer and a very clearly formulated exit plan. You know, I have a club, this club wants me, or I have two clubs and they want me, and I want to leave and I'm going to force this through. In this case, it seems the other way around, which is bizarre. I mean, Ronaldo has made it clear, both personally and through his, through his agent and outriders in the media, that he wants to leave. And United are kind of saying publicly, we don't want him to leave. I think secretly they're probably saying, well, let's see what happens. But there is no one there who takes him. So you have this weird sort of limbo where neither party can really do anything to change the situation at this point. Um, I've seen it being spun as, you know, United have failed to convince Ronaldo to change his mind. But I don't think it's about that. It's about where, where does he go? He'll still be there then. That's the, it's going to be like Isn't a kind it? of George Costanzo moment come next week. I hope weekend. Nick is thinking exactly the same thing with me, which is this has got <laughs> Evangelos Maranakis paying £800,000 a week to Cristiano Ronaldo all over it. <laughs> Magnificent. All right. Well, looking forward to uh, seeing how that one plays out. Now, other Super Cup curtain uh, raiser for seasons across Europe. PSV beat Ajax in the Dutch Super Cup. Also 5-3. That game with added significance because it was Ruud van Nistelrooy's first game as PSV manager. Woof. A big 4-0 win, meantime, for PSG. Plucky underdogs in Ligue 1, seeing off Nantes uh, by that scoreline in the Trophée des Champions. Neymar got two. Sergio Ramos also scored. Did you see Leo Messi's opener, though? That was very nice. Messi, Messi, le crochet. 
Christophe Gauthier debuting on the PSG bench. Lovely stuff. Elsewhere, quick shout for the Athletics countdown of the top 50 individual performances from the 30 years of the Premier League. Since we spoke, we've only gone and entered the top five. Crikey. Do you want to hear the top five? Daniel does. Well, at five, it was David Silva's virtuoso display for Man City in their 6-1 win over Man United at Old Trafford in 2011. At four, Dennis Bergkamp, the hat-trick for Arsenal in the 3-3 at Leicester, 97, including goal of the season. At three, Eric Cantona woof, for Man United in the very first season of the Premier League. Uh, Cantona, who, did he not score a hat-trick in the Community Shield or something stupid that that year for Leeds, who then promptly sold him to Man United and ended up finishing where? Students of the Games, was it 17th that year or something? Bizarre. Anyway, that was number three and that was against Spurs. And number two, which is out today, August the 1st, and this is the off-sighted on this podcast at least, Thierry Henry hat-trick for Arsenal against Liverpool in 2004 as the Invincibles marched towards the title. I say, do you want to hit the top five? But the number one hasn't come out yet. Mm. Well, I touted Brian Roy away at Sheffield Wednesday in April 1995, <laughs> and I haven't had it yet. So hasn't happened yet. can only assume. <laughs> Way to ruin the suspense, <laughs> Daniel. Is he right? Well, find out by signing up for The Athletic today, or the day that you're choosing, but do it soon while they've got a special offer running. That special offer in full is £1 a month for the first six months. Cheapers. Go to theathletic.com slash totally, The Athletic, if only they did energy. Nick, the EFL returned this weekend. Give us the headlines. Mm. Um, yeah, relatively low-key start in the championship. Um, Norwich lost to Cardiff, uh, which was, I suppose, a bit of a surprise with a team that looked very, very similar to um, the one that got relegated last season. Um, they had a man advantage for some of the second half, but they still lost. Um, Hull, who probably could be one of the most interesting teams in the division this season, if only because they could be brilliant or they could be an absolute disaster. But they came from behind to beat Bristol City, scoring the winner in the 93rd minute. Um, elsewhere, kind of lots of nil nils and one ones and one nils. Nothing kind of enormously exciting. But I think the the highlight of the EFL weekend was um, New Doncaster signing Lee Tomlin, um, who getting himself sent off, uh, getting himself sent off Gabriel Martinelli esque for two yellow cards in the space of about fifteen seconds. I would urge anyone listening to go look up the clip because it is it's absolutely beautiful. But uh, if uh, to, to describe it briefly, he is standing over a uh, an opposition. Is they're playing Bradford, standing over a Bradford free kick, trying to prevent them from taking it quickly. He kicks the ball away a couple of times in that sort of petty little just nudging the ball five yards one way. The referee loses patience, books him once, and then a Bradford player comes up behind him and sort of glances him on the back. He throws himself to the ground, and the referee thinks about it for a second and thinks, no, I'm not having this, gives him a second yellow card and sends him off while Tomlin is still sitting on his arse on, on the pitch, which um, one of the more dignified ways to get sent off. And that, you know, that was, uh, it was just, I think it was just before half time on his debut. One of his teammates is kind of standing behind him at various points, trying to nudge him away to save himself. And then when he gets the red card, this teammate just kind of slumps over and as if to say, ah, oh, fuck. So it, it was a, a wonderful moment and I urge everyone to look it up. All right. Also, check out the new look Burnley. Isn't that right, Daniel? Starting off their uh, their, their their Vincent Company directed uh, championship season with a one 0 at Huddersfield. 
Yeah, the one nil maybe isn't so surprising. The fact that they had 70% possession, which is the highest they've ever recorded in a, a match for which possession statistics have been recorded, uh, is surprising. The fact that they look so coherent with the ball, the, the pass and move was like, well, it's certainly like nothing we've seen from Burnley in a long time, but it's like nothing we've seen from many championship teams, quite frankly. Uh, I... I didn't quite get people sleeping on Burnley. They were sixth favourites for the championship at the start of the season. And I mean, they finished comfortably ahead of Watford and Norwich last season, who are, you know, I know they've lost defenders, but they've also bought really well in, in Scott Twine particularly. So yeah, Burnley looked really, really good on Friday night. Already. Well, Premier League returns this coming Friday with Crystal Palace against Arsenal. And as I mentioned, we've got an extra show coming up on Tuesday, an extra preview show with loads of stuff in it, a few quiz questions. We'll be um, citing that lovely Tim Spears article that's coming out on The Athletic this week, talking about the objects which have summed up the Premier League. What's yours, listener? Anyway, have a listen to that. We'll also, of course, be breaking down who we think is going to do what this season. What else is coming up on The Athletic or beyond? Nick, you've got a book out. Mm, well, thank you, James. I'm glad you asked. Um, yes, the Totally Football book, second edition of it, uh, is coming out on October the 6th. Um, uh, available to pre-order now. Features uh, some excellent writing from all your Totally favourites. Rafa and Daniel both uh, feature. We've also got uh, James Horcastle writing about Giorgio Chiellini. Tom Williams has written about Gav Bale, very much in his wheelhouse. Uh, Julian and Ron, uh, and, uh, you know... Surprising, surprisingly enough, has written about uh, PSG and Kylian Mbappe, mm. um, and lots and lots more. It's it's supposed to be a sort of um, a collection of writing about where football is in 2022. We've also got your own uh, personal on this day feature, so you can you know look up all of those, and then of course lots and lots of quiz questions, so you can quiz stage, questions stage your own into totally quiz if you so desire. So I yes. Desire. Out on October the 6th, available to pre-order now. And we'll tweet your link out to that uh, after the pod gets published today. Oh, brilliant. All right. Rafa, looking forward to reading your bit especially. And uh, you'll have some stuff perhaps now that you're back on uh, The Athletic this week. What are you writing? Yeah, we've got some really good uh, stuff coming this week. Uh, I had the fortune of speaking to Leroy Sané about his uh, time at Bayern and looking forward to the World Cup. Uh, there's an interview with the Leipzig coach in the making and one or two bits about the new season starting in Germany, of course, at the weekend. Brilliant. All right, that's going to be out on The Athletic this week. One pound a month for the next six months. Crikey. Uh, we've got the preview show tomorrow and then Thursday we're back in which we'll also, uh, beyond kind of previewing the weekend's fixtures and that, we'll also be uh, having a quick look at the final qualifying round of the Champions League, which is be uh, the first legs of which will be this week. Monaco against PSV, Benfica against Michelin, Bodo Glimt. They're now just uh, one qualifying round away from the Champions League group stage. Crikey, they're up against Zalgiris from Lithuania, who also, I now reflect, just one qualifying round away from the Champions League group stage. Extraordinary. Oh, plus Rangers up against uh, Tony Bloom's Belgian outfit, Union Saint-Gilois. The revelations of the Belgian uh, Jupiler Pro League. Is that what it's called, Jupiler Pro League? It is called the Jupiler Pro League, as we discussed on the uh, European Totally Football Show last season. Brilliant. Preview show tomorrow. Daniel will be back for that. Many thanks to you for today, Daniel, and to Nick, and to Rafa, Charlotte earlier on, and, of course, producer Charlie. And you, listener, not long now till it all gets going again. Do join us for our preview on Tuesday for now. 
from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.